the director decided I didn't know what I was doing. And he had showed up to work that day with the intention of firing me. And the guy who was there on set was the gaffer who was there to replace me. When the producer heard about this, he was like, have you talked to Tim about this yet? Welcome to Pictures Up, the podcast where we talk about careers in film. Today we're talking with gaffer Matt Hadley. If any of you are unsure what a gaffer does, a gaffer is essentially the chief lighting technician on a film set. So they're in charge of the electric department and also work with the grip department to uh, set all the lights and uh, really dial in the look of the light on a film project. One thing that's really interesting about Matt is his implementation of new technology. And he actually does a lot of his work with an iPad at a monitor now. He's really had, I guess what I would call a big break in his career path. So we're gonna talk about that and learn a little bit more about how that change took place and where he's headed at the moment. So let's go ahead and get right into it. Maybe a fun place to start and then we'll back up, is uh, what's the next project that you're working on? Um, So the next major project I have coming up is a uh, feature that's shooting in L.A. in February. Um, Louisiana uh, or Los Angeles? (laughs) Los Angeles. Okay, I was just in Louisiana. Um, It it is. It's funny because you do kind of have to make that differentiation now because louisiana has started to get back on the rise with their tax stuff coming back yeah everything yeah they really have um but yeah it's uh it's a small film um but it's a friend of of um a friend of me and the dp that i've been working with greta's um it's a friend of ours project that we we both really really like the script so we're, we're taking it kind of you know because it'll be kind of an interesting thing that we'll have we have room to get weird with it because it's smaller and there's not, you know, as much pressure, I think, as, like, a larger movie that's trying to, like, make all its money back. Um, but it should be a lot of fun. Um, I, don't, I don't think I should get into specifics too much. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, it'll be an interesting project. One of the cool things for me about it is that it, uh, it takes place in a music venue like most of the film takes place in a music venue um with some like live performance stuff um so from a lighting perspective it means we'll be working with you know a traditional kind of like film lighting kit um but also an entire stage setup with lots of like dmx programming and stuff for kind of like live lighting cues um so that'll be really interesting because it's it's a little out of my wheelhouse um, but it, there's a lot of room to do really cool stuff and especially like with color and stuff. Cause that's been something I've been working on, um, is trying to work more saturated colors into, yeah. into lighting and stuff. Uh, and this has a lot of room for stuff like that. You're actually not the first gaffer that I have interviewed. Okay. And, um, I'd be interested to hear your definition of what a gaffer is and um what a what what a day in the life looks like so to to preface maybe a little bit with like what my actual level of like experience is um i'm six years in the industry as a gaffer um only now starting to break into kind of like more major 
film projects. Um, but one of the one of the things that's kind of weird is that like because I started gaffing small projects with you know people from the university that I went to, uh, I, I never really worked under other gaffers. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I haven't I haven't seen a lot. But generally, from my experience in working with DPs, that uh, there's there's multiple levels of what they expect a gaffer to do. Um, in in a lot of circumstances, um, DPs are very particular about their lighting. Um, they they want to be seen as the person who is who is putting the whole plan together. Um, so in a lot of circumstances like that, it, it ends up being that like sometimes a gaffer can be a, a, what like some people might refer to as a voice activated light stand. Um, <laughs> And those those situations are always very tough for me because I, I super butt heads with people like that. Um, but more more along the lines of what I aim for um, and, and try to find in DPs that I work with is a relationship where they can largely forget about lighting and not really have to worry about it. Um, I like to position myself in a way where we can walk in to a scene rehearsal and the DP's like, here's where the camera's gonna be. And then I'll just be, okay, well, we should light it like this. Um, and on some level of that, there's a lot of like preliminary conversation with the DP. Like like that for that to work, I have to know what they want. Um, but there, there's kind of like a large variance of how much you're really like included in the creative process versus somebody who is I would say executing the director of photography's plan. Um, and I tend to fall in the camp of like larger creative input. Um, I'm super opinionated, which means I tend to butt heads with DPs who are very particular because we don't agree. And I am very confident that I'm right a lot of the times in those circumstances. Um, but in general, I would say like, the large part is, you know, at, at its basest, a gaffer is managing the electric department. Um, okay. There's there's also some level of like on smaller stuff you're doing the grip department too. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I found more recently as I've gotten into larger projects that there's like a there's a wider gap between grip and electric um, than you think. Like they're very separated. Um, but generally, yeah, it's 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 knowing. It's knowing a lot about shaping light, uh, and it's knowing a lot of technical aspects about heads and like how much output they have, so that you know you're getting enough output. Um, and then power math is is like a huge part of it. It's like getting into a space where a lot of the times you're either working off house power, um, where you're having to be very careful about blowing breakers, uh, or you're using a generator, which means you're designing a power grid from the top down for the entire set. Um, so I like general electrician work is like a huge portion of it too, I think. If you had to uh, try to boil all of that down into a sentence or two, what would you say that it is that a gaffer does? I, my most basis explanation that I usually use is uh, when people ask me what I do, I tell them uh, I point really bright things at really dark things. Um, and I think that's like a pretty good way to see it is that like generally your idea is to um, bring light into the environment and then the grips will remove light from the environment. Um, so yeah, I, I think a one sentence explanation would be 
you know, a gaffer is a person who executes the lighting plan and manages the electricity for the set. That's kind of your main focus. What What's your favorite thing about it? Uh, you know, um, there's a lot of things I love about it. Uh, I've always loved lighting. Um, even before I knew that that was what it was, uh, my early years out of college and, and my time in college, um, I was working as a photographer. <clears throat> uh, and photography became my first kind of like artistic obsession, the thing that like I just couldn't get enough of. And I, I was doing it professionally for a while. And, and I realized that I actually didn't like all of the other things that you do as a photographer. I just love the idea of like lighting a space. Mm. Um, and so that was when I kind of like started refocusing in towards gaffing. And it's to me, what's amazing about it is, is light is, is everywhere. Like it's, it's like all over the world around us. And it's like a very easy thing for me to obsess about on a constant basis. Like I can't tell you how many times I'll be sitting having a conversation with somebody like here where it's like, oh, look how the light is coming in through these windows and casting like interesting shadows on the table. And how can I like recreate that in a movie sense? Um, <clears throat> so I love the idea of like shaping it because it's, it's, it's like all encompassing. It's something that is every day in every aspect of your life and most people just glaze over it but it's like something that i can kind of like see through the curtain a little bit and kind of like spend time thinking about um and looking at, at film as a whole i think gaffing was perfect for me because you're very you have a lot of creative input on the way a film looks especially you know with when i work with a dp that i've worked with for a long time I have a huge amount of creative input on the film. Uh, but being far enough below the line, you you dodge a lot of the political things that go on above the line on film. Like there's a, like DP was probably my main goal uh, before I kind of like settled down and decided I was going to be a career gaffer. <clears throat> and seeing DP's work and stuff, I've 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 come to realize that there's a lot of baggage that comes with that. Like you're, you are committed to a project, uh, and, and you're dealing with managing the director and you're fighting the producers for all of this stuff with money and stuff. But it's like, for me, it's like when you're in G and E, none of that is really, your you're problem. sheltered. Yeah. You're, yeah. you're, you're underneath the blanket of the DP. Um, so there's this, it's, it's cool because you can have this feeling like you're, you're creatively involved in the process of filmmaking but you you miss out on a lot of the stuff that is kind of the less exciting things about it um and the more just like political nature of a film because it is like anytime you get like a group of people like that there's going to be issues um but yeah i i enjoy that i can i can kind of get in there and kind of like be in it and then be out of it <laughs> are there yeah i hear what you're saying so you know the farther uh i don't necessarily like the idea of calling it a food chain but sort of the the farther you rise in a crew the more your daily experience is dominated by essentially uh just interpersonal interaction right sometimes very high stakes interpersonal interaction right there's and um and when you're uh the farther you are from that the more you tend to be protected from it not that you may not uh reap some of the consequences of some of what goes on up there but it's 
it's not really so much you sticking your neck out. Right. There's not many instances where I have to go after a producer for something, right? Not even, let's say you need uh, condors or lights or, like, do you ever find yourself in a situation where you're just like, uh, I know what the DP wants, but I don't have the tools? Definitely. Um, th there's... Um, there, there are definitely times where you know you don't have the tools to accomplish it, and that is that is probably the one thing that I do end up getting involved in is is like budgetary concerns as far as like what gear you can just afford to have, um, and that there's there's kind of like two levels of it, right? Like you get the DP on board, and then they go to bat with you, but there's always some level of you have to go to the producer and be like, I need all of these things, and I need. I need need them and they have to be here but in the G&E there's some level of I need this it needs to be here this day I don't it's not my problem how you get it or where the money comes from like there there are worlds where they'll be like oh we just can't afford it and you will have to like work your way around it but in a lot of senses it's if it's something that you need um it's it's a world where you just have to demand it and you have to say this is how things are going to go which is hard for me cuz that's not um, you know, I, I grew up in the small budget world, so like I'm very used to working very closely with the companies to get just enough to make it work. Right. Um, but it was like a mind, it was like a shift of my point of view getting into features where it's like, they're going to try to like fight you to do it for as little as possible, but like you have to make sure that that's not also at the expense of the quality of the film. Um, right. because if you, even if it's, if it's one one scene so I, here's an example of this uh and this is probably an example of me more working back and forth with the producers but i was on a film in new york at the uh the end of fall of this year um and uh we we were shooting a really really like weird exterior night scenes and we'd shot some exterior nights but what was what was difficult about this what is it's a night exterior that was kind of out in the woods. So like, there's no, there's nowhere for light to come from, right? Like you right. can't like. It just happens to be street lights in this forest. Exactly, for right. And the, <laughs> the traditional thing you would do is you would play moonlight, which is right. something that I'm right now very, very against. And and that's because I haven't found the way to do it properly. Mm. Um, so the, there was this huge discussion of how are we gonna pull off this scene? And the, the movie was already like really low on money um, but we decided, me and the key grip, that like we needed a sky panel S360 um, because we needed a, a, like a lot of output, <clears throat> and there was a lighting effect that took place in the scene where all of the light around them is kind of strobing. The basically the the sky panel gave us the ability to control it wirelessly through DMX and and match the strobing because it needed to match an effect from earlier in the movie. Oh, um, so we went to production and we were like, we need an S360 for this day. Um, and we really want a condor. We wanted a 40 foot condor um, because we wanted to hang it over top of the scene, which is probably the best way to do it. But it's really expensive. And we went through a lot of different ideas. We talked about getting balloon lights, which is like a thing that's like a little yeah. bit easier to fly. But like we were worried about wind speed because... And 
for people listening, a balloon light, it's it's like a helium yes, deal right? where you float a light up on a helium balloon. Right. And it's they're super cool, but if, if your wind speed exceeds yeah. they're five, better indoors. You're, you're out of it, right? Like if you're in a, a big uh, venue or, you know, right. where it you ends don't up, have wind. It ends up becoming a thing where, like, you end up wanting to hang them from condors anyway when you're outside for safety reasons. Right. Um. But we couldn't get them to, we couldn't afford a moon, uh, a balloon light, and we put in this request for the condor, and they were like, yeah, okay, we'll put it all in, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then the next day, the producer came back and was like, oh, well, we actually definitely can't afford this, which is like, for one, I, I understand, because we knew we were making probably a $7,000 ask with the equipment, as well as like, you, we had to hire a rigging crew, right? Right. Um. And what ended up happening was there was this level of back and forth with me and the producer and the key grip, and we ended up settling on, we got the S360, and then we got um, some extra 20-foot crank crank stands. Crank elevators. Yeah, they're not, mm-hmm. they're not amazing to work with, but they kind of get the job done. Um, and that was ended up what we went with. And everything worked, and it, it actually worked really well. Um, but that's that's kind of an example of, I think, like, the higher end of when you start really getting into it, like what, what you'll have to like work with to do stuff. Cause it's, there's, there's this, always this back and forth where you have to be, you have to be assertive about the things that you need, but you also have to be aware of the bigger picture and you have to be able to think on the fly to make something less happen. Uh, if you just absolutely can't have the things that are the best things. Right. Right. Um, and that's common because I'm definitely still in the small budget indie world. You yeah. Know, everybody's still scraping by. Uh, I have a bunch of questions I want to ask about that. But did you just uh, put a beam between the crank stands and, and suspend the light between them? No, or did you we, put the, we flew the, the light panel on the on crank, one? Sc- crank stand and, and, and threw it from kind of like a back three-quarter-esque direction. Okay. Um, so that it was more of like a backy light than a toppy light. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that helped us, we ended up playing in some of the scenes some headlights from cars that were around okay. and that helped us get some more light and then also like we just we did it really really dark like that was the, definitely the thing was that like you know the not, not the, much fill right like everything is even even the key side was probably under 60 ire like your yeah. highlight so it was like bringing the whole image down into this really dark feeling thing so that even though our light was like maybe a little punchier than it should have been um it's still red as night um, cuz that was the that was the struggle with us was like we really really me and me and Greta really don't like a lot of the way that moonlight is done in movies these days um and so we wanted it to be a little softer uh but yeah we ended up going with you know the the S360 kind of like covering the main portion of where we were shooting uh and then we had an M40 that was kind of like way up the hill in the woods um shooting across the the background area of the field um just creating like a little bit of texture so that we could see that stuff was back there and it didn't just turn into it's an hmi fixture yeah the the area m40 it's a 4000 watt um hmi that's like really good um so that was basically we had those two on 20 foot stands and we kind of like shuffled them around um which kind of became a whole thing because it's like like moving one of those stands and resetting it is hugely time consuming because you're you're setting all of these guy wires yeah. uh and you because it ended up being very very windy that night like uncomfortably windy 
Um, right. So how many, did you stake it down three or four directions or how uh, does that work? I want to say they were doing a minimum of four. Okay. Um, and maybe, maybe a few more in some circumstances. I, I will say that that is one of the scenarios um, that is becoming more common where it's a thing that I didn't mess with much in my early career because I've been on such smaller shoots. Um, so I just hired people who knew how to do it and I had them do it the whole time. Right. Right. So um, there was some level of like, I'm not totally aware, but it was definitely at least four wires in all four directions. Yeah. Because um, we were doing a full and the, the S360 is huge. It's like a big sale, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it worked and, and the effect worked really well. Um, Did you have any trouble hiding the stand? Um, so we from the get-go like before we set the lights i had a very long conversation about the whole scene with greta because it was not an option to have to move them mid-scene we didn't have the time and one of the other things about this night that was what made it really awful um was that it was the same night we were shooting like a rave scene Mm. in in this barn and this all took place outside so we essentially had a big exterior where they drive in you know to the party and then all of the stuff in the party which was the party was super complex because i was rigging a bunch of rgb lights all over this barn and controlling them remotely through dmx so it was like that needed to be and dmx i'm sure People, some people will know exactly what that is, but it's essentially a control protocol for lights. So it gives you, and wireless DMX basically just gives you the ability to wirelessly control your lights. Right. Yeah. It's if if you were at a stage show, all the lights are running on DMX. It's becoming, it's always been fairly popular in film, but it's starting to become more accessible because more lights have it. Uh, and me personally, on this film, invested. I, I invested in. Um, this this wireless kit which basically allows me to control all of the lights from my iPad or a computer which is different because normally you have like a board that you program on um, so it was this really complicated day because we had these exteriors both of which had car rigs um, which meant I lost grips to that and then we were also rigging this like crazy um, interior barn so it was like a super loaded day and so before we ever set any of this stuff for the exteriors i was like greta like i need to know where your cameras are going to be so that we're just not in the frame um and we did that i think there was one shot that was catching a little bit of one of the stands um and we did what's pretty a pretty common cheat if it's kind of in the deeper space and we just wrapped the base of it in duvetine, duvetine yeah uh, and it and just duvetine yeah. is heavy black fabric. yeah a very a very mm -hmm. dark uh it eats a lot of light so basically it just made it disappear um and you know hiding stands is always a thing here i don't understand why they don't just make stands out of like why don't they just powder coat them with black or I, anodize I, them it makes so much sense i don't know if the cost is a thing but it, it seems to me like that should be the thing i don't know why all the stands are silver and maybe there's some level of Maybe it's safer if, if you can it's see them. silver, you for sure see it rather than, oh, you don't see it until it's on a 40-foot screen. Yeah. Because that's, oh, yeah. that's the thing. Oh, it's like trying to think about looking at something on a 21-inch monitor versus a 40-foot projected theater screen. You see so much more. Yeah, but by that, by that uh, 
reasoning ACs should wear white and orange and stuff. So, oh, you can see my reflection. Yeah, I, it was, uh, it, right. Because there, I mean, there's definitely times where it's like, yeah, it's like, how much do you want to hide stuff and how much do you want to see it and get ahead of it and try to fix it on the right. day? Maybe, maybe it's because an AC is just so frequently in a position where they're gonna get caught in reflections like it's just sort of a given so yeah. you just minimize You're it as much as behind possible. the camera while we're shooting i mean yeah. yeah um but that's a constant struggle and i think for me like working with a dp um who is like aware of that is really good because i'm sure a lot of dps will be like oh your stand's in my shot figure out how to light it and keep the stand there but a lot of the dps i work with you know if we get to a shot and the stands in the shot they'll be like oh yeah that's fine i can move over two inches and pan this way and it's gone um so that yeah. kind of like back and forth is really important um and that's what's great when you work with a dp who understands things like that and and is can weigh like is it worth the time because that's all it is is it's like time right is it worth 10 minutes to try to fix this or is it worth me moving my shot just a little bit so that it's not a problem Right. Yeah. And I, I think uh, definitely as you work with bigger fixtures, uh, even like the sun, uh, sometimes you're better off like to find ways to cheat the camera position to make the light work without having to move the light. If the light is a really, you know, a source yeah. that can't be and easily moved. It's 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 a really good thing to be thinking about all the time when you go in, because um, especially with the style of the stuff that I've been doing lately that's like very naturalistic and like trying to achieve that that very natural but still pretty aesthetic in a film, you should be walking into every scene thinking about your shots with the lighting that already exists in the room, right? It's like you mentioned the sun, like if we walk into a room that has three windows in it, we we definitely have to have the conversation of, let's block this scene so that the windows are already in a position that's helping us because right, if we're trying right. to fight those or if we put the windows to the back of the people in a day scene and then we just bring in a light to the front side to give them light on their face it, it won't feel natural because you right. want the light to come from a place that makes sense um so that's i feel like that's a thing that is like is should constantly be in your thought of of the light in the space and how you can how you can use it to your advantage uh because that's definitely that has what for me has made the quality of my work go up tremendously in the past year uh, is working with a DP who has really really high standards for things like that mm. um, and holding as far as motivated right the motivation for light <clears throat> right to for me to be held super accountable um, to to having motivation for my light it it totally it totally bumped up my game. Like it, it's the quality of stuff that I've, I've, I've put out with this DP is better than anything I've done. And I think it's because of that idea of like forced motivation. Like you don't not, not faking it unless you absolutely have to. Um, so, okay. So this is really interesting. I, I wanted to, to dive back into a little bit, uh, your preferred, uh, style of collaboration, you know, and, uh, as uh, when I work as a cinematographer, I like to have my hands on the light uh, right. aspect of it, uh, you know. So I, I don't know. We've worked together, and I didn't feel like we've butted heads a lot. Maybe you've just been biting your, biting your tongue. But uh, <laughs> but what you were just talking about, as far as being held accountable, I think that's a, there's an interesting uh, there's an interesting combination of things there. Where like if you it, it sounds like what you're saying, and this resonates as being true, is that you don't want to be micromanaged, 
but you want somebody who expects you to do your best. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like it's it's you know I, I don't want to be told every aspect of where light should go. Um but but I want somebody to be like and this is this was a difficult thing for me, is like, you know, with lighting it doesn't exist until you do it, right? Like, I, I can look at a space and think about how I'll light it all I want, but I'm never really sure if it's going to look the way it does in my head until I set it. Yes. Um, so there's always this thing that has been an issue for me, which is I'll be mid-setup and a DP will come to me and be like, I don't think this is working. Uh, and and me being maybe a little bit stubborn in myself is like wanting to like get through it. And be like, well, let, let me just let me just get this all up and like see how it's working. Um, and I think that a change in my mindset, and a lot of this just comes from like having a really deep trust in the DP's opinion, is being able to like when some when they come in and do that to be like, yes, you're right. We need to stop and we need to look at how we're approaching this and figure it out because this isn't going to work. Mm. Um, so it's it's good to have. I definitely want to have that level of a DP who will come to me when something's bad and be like, "This isn't right, and we have to we have to fix this." Um, how does that feel if somebody comes up to you, like, like, you know, it's weird. <laughs> um, I, like, I had a lot of pride about it before, um, and I think there was some level of. I worked with a lot of DPs who were from my generation, and so mm. it was easy for me to fight back on things with them because I didn't necessarily feel like they knew more than me. Mm. Like I felt mm -hmm. like we were kind of on an even plane you trying felt like to figure your peers. it out. Um, but on my more recent work, I've definitely been working with somebody who has spent more time in the industry than me. So I, I value their opinion significantly. Um, but, but also there's this weird level of like, it's it's really easy for me to say something's not working now because I am really surprised when it is still. Like, I'm still in this weird world where I don't think things should be coming out as good as they are. Um, so when, when something doesn't work in my mind, I'm just like, okay, yeah, that's, that's just... I'm trying to think of how to put it into words. Uh, I have widespread self-esteem self issues in my life, and that definitely transfers into my work in film. And for the past few months, I feel like I've been playing outside of my league like a little bit like I definitely feel like I'm on things that I'm not qualified to be on so it's very easy for me to be like yes I'm definitely wrong on this um so you're saying you feel a little bit like an imposter yeah no and, and yeah I like I feel like I've been doing this not just in my career in film but my whole life like my motto has been fake it till you make it like if you can if you can act enough like you know something people will believe that and and if you can follow through on it even more so like I feel like the first film that I did with this DP this summer um, I was 100% faking it the whole time uh, but like we got through it and the second film I think that was the first one that I felt like I I went into it feeling like I was qualified to do it um, so I imagine like over time my pride will grow back and <laughs> and and start to become an issue and it, it has it has since I came back here. That's what's really interesting. It's like coming back and working on stuff with DPs that I've worked with for a very long time and like starting to butt heads with them a little bit because I'm I'm very confident in my opinions. Uh, and that's been, a, that's been an interesting kind of challenge all on its own. It's like I feel like I'm having to relearn how to work with people I've been working with for years. So it sounds like you've had kind of a breakthrough as far as the 
kind and quality of work that you've been a- a- able to do. Yeah, you know, I I think there's like a couple of factors to that. And I think it's an environmental change. Um, I think it, it comes from, for one, just narrative versus commercial, you know? Like aesthetics is not the number one priority. Aesthetics is not the number one priority of a commercial project. Um, so like on a feature, in narrative, everything you do has to it has to hit a baseline of quality that you set right like every time you shoot something in a movie especially in the first week or so you're setting the tone for the quality of the rest of the things you shoot for the whole movie um and and that thing you said uh, where you're not making your days but you're like super happy with the stuff you're shooting that resonates so strongly with me because i've had that on both of these movies where you know, we're not making our days, but we're so happy with the footage that we're getting. And we don't know if we're going to be able to get all of it in the schedule. Um, and there's, there's some level of like working in this scenario with a DP who's confident enough to say, no, like, I know you want us to like condense this and do it as quickly as possible, but like, we're not going to do that because it would be, it would be a detriment to the quality of the film. Uh, and even more specifically, I feel like on, you know, one of the films I worked on this year, uh, there was this thing where it was a very low budget movie and we were really strapped for cash pretty much from the get go. Uh, but as the movie went on, people complained less about money uh, and, and talking with that, talking with, you know, the DP and stuff afterwards, uh, it became apparent that what had really happened was the quality of the work that we produced at the beginning of the movie made the director and the financers realize that they were a part of something that was going to be better than what they thought oh, you know wow. that they had they had they had thought oh it's a first time director um we're going to try to put them in a position to make a good movie um but i think you know a third of the way through the schedule we realized that we we were making a great movie that like we were making something that like had these really high standards of visual quality and that they needed to get more money for us to continue this. And that's what I imagine happened was because people stopped complaining about money and the things that we needed started arriving. And I think that that was because we set a bar and then, you know, probably through a a conversation of the EPs and the director and the DP, it was just decided that like, we needed to do what we needed to do to maintain this level of quality because it would be a huge detriment to the film for things to just kind of like go off the deep end because we start rushing and we don't have the things that we need. Um, so there's this is this weird this weird thing where I don't know the way the way that that she brought it to me at the beginning of this movie um, was that and, and it took me a while to realize what this means was that she said the producers were a little inexperienced and that I should take advantage of that. And I, I, I didn't quite get what she meant until I realized that the producers were not very good at managing the money on the film. So at the beginning, we asked for like a lot. Like we got an expensive camera package and an expensive G&E package, which put them out of a lot of money, um, but put us in a position to start making the film well enough that they had to come up with more later. Mm. Um, so there was this there was this weird thing where we kind of front loaded a lot of the expenses on the film, kind of like maybe in hope that more money will show up, which is, in my experience, a lot of the times will happen. Like 
like money tends to show up on these things especially when there's it's not a studio right like this is an investor yeah uh and if you look at investment from like a stock perspective anyone who invests in something major like that has probably what do they say two-thirds of their original investment saved up to help save it or to cover their losses Mm, Um, and I think that's true in film too that like when people invest in a movie project they might invest $250,000 in the movie but if they have $250,000 to invest in the movie odds are they have the extra $100,000 that you need to really finish it uh, and they just need to be assured that the money is going to something that they believe in it sounds like you have had the privilege of living out the positive version of that potential exactly right <laughs> yeah and uh, yeah right there's two sides to every coin uh and there definitely is a world where it goes the other yeah, way yeah <laughs> there are there are times when it goes the the other direction and you get halfway in to something and then suddenly there isn't money to finish and everybody's checks start bouncing and right yeah I've been wanting to sit down and and talk with you more and and interview you for a while. And then when we started talking a couple of months ago about some of the things you've been working on recently, it seems like you're at kind of an exciting place in your career right now. So I guess we've been hitting various sort of parts of your journey, but uh, do you think you could give us kind of an overview of the highlights of of your work in film? I got my start... um straight out of college working with some people locally um there's a local dp brian fowler who kind of took me under his wing uh and started teaching me more and more about working in the industry and then a a lot of my early work was with a local company called pathfinder who you know uh, was originally a group of people me and and some friends from school who were producing content from a production company within the university Uh, And then they kind of like split off and created their own business. Uh, And a lot of my early work was with those guys, which was really, it was a good, safe learning environment because we were all kind of figuring it out. Um, And then I probably spent the next four or five years just kind of like doing that grind, you know, commercial stuff here and there, trying to meet more people. Uh, And it was, to say it was a struggle would be an understatement. there was so what wouldn't be an understatement (laughs) um i was i was so broke for most of it that like it was like paying my rent and eating ramen was like a was like a that was a special month if i could do both (laughs) of those things uh because it's tough to build that that kind of base and was it because you weren't working enough days or you weren't making enough on the days you were working i think it's a little bit of both right like you're slowly kind of like raising your day rate over time so i think i was i was i was i was under a solid day rate um but i think a lot of it was the amount of time that i was working so it was more not enough days than right i was the day rate was too low i was having trouble booking enough days here in chattanooga um with the few companies that i worked with um so my my approach for for many years was to get all of the production companies in chattanooga to use me as their main gaffer um which I spent, you know, years working on and, and finally kind of got to. Um, and then the point that things really changed for me was at the end of last year, 2017. Yeah. Um, 
at the time over the summer I had started working enough that I was supporting myself well but I was still kind of in this world where I was like I- I'm doing gaffing right now because it's like the thing that I'm best at but like I want to do something cooler like I want to be a director I want to be a DP and I-, I directed several commercials that year and that kind of like made me realize that I didn't actually want to be a director <laughs> okay um, <laughs> it, it, uh, dig it, uh, I don't want to get on too, too sidetracked but dig into that a little yeah like I think it's a lot of that thing that I mentioned earlier about the politics of it like uh, and especially in the commercial world I realized as a director you're just beholden to an ad agency and you're just you're it doesn't matter what you think is funny or what you think is good you have to do the thing that they want and that really frustrated me because it was like well if I'm not gonna have like I felt like I had less creative control because I was being watched so much closer than I do when I do lighting work. If a micromanaging DP to a gaffer it makes you a voice activated uh, light stand, then maybe uh, if you're a director working with a micromanaging uh, ad agency that makes you a voice activated uh, instructor or something. Yeah, you become an you become an, an an action cut robot, right? Like that's all you kind of do is show up there and like you're in there with the talent, but like the talent was never working with the talent was never the thing I liked about directing cuz it's it's tough. There's just it's it's hard to do. Um, but what I liked was the idea of like cuz I was I was focusing towards comedy, so I liked the idea of setting up these really funny bits, but like it ended up being that like all of my funny bits were getting cut because they weren't really about the product. Okay. And so it would just, it would end up being all of the stuff that was just boring product garbage and everything that I really thought was interesting was getting cut out of them because it was, it was more to me, it's more about trying to make people laugh, um, which uh, is not a lot of ad agencies prerogative. So I realized that 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 wasn't for me. Uh, And then I think the big change came at the end of 2017 uh, when I booked my first feature gig, a movie that was produced by you. Mm, Um, And uh, it was Belly of the Whale. It was it was mostly students from Southern uh, and uh, uh, me and two other like graduated professionals um who who were in it and that was that was interesting for me because i had not been able to do anything other than narrative short work up yeah. until that point uh and it was like i the <laughs> excuse the analogy but i feel like it must have been what people feel like when they do heroin for the first time i came off of that movie realizing that like I don't ever want to do anything else <laughs> with <Okay>. my life forever. <laughs> like all I wanted to do was shoot movies and I realized that like I like I wanted to be a gaffer. Like I I want to do this. Like I want to take this as far as I can. And I booked a second film. I think 2 weeks afterwards we were in LA doing prep for the second movie and that was um another really good but really rough experience. Um and so from that point on, that was when I said, I'm going to be a gaffer. And that's that's going to be the thing that I'm going to focus on. Uh, and it was weird because that was when things really took off for me. And my commercial life became incredibly packed. Um, I spent most of 2018 bouncing around from state to state doing a lot of commercial jobs, which was... And I think what broke the mold was that I started getting hired by people who aren't in Chattanooga, who were bringing me in to do things um, where they were because I was with a DP who wanted me. Um so I got really heavily worked in the commercial world without doing any other real narrative other than a few shorts that I had done. I was doing, I started doing student projects at the school again and we, we did one together. Um, 
and that was that was me wanting to try to like creatively you know spread my wings and kind of like work those muscles uh and then things all kind of like came to a head uh this summer i was on my way back from i was i was in san diego um working on a project for the navy that i've been doing um for a lot of last year and we're continuing to do it this year um and i remember i was we were standing on a we were on a air traffic control tower just standing there waiting for these f-35s to land so that we could get footage of them landing uh and i got a text message from a friend of mine who i had uh i had i had lit a short film for him for free like probably a year previously and not thought much of it like he was a friend of mine but i did it because it was fun uh and he was like hey there's some people i know who are shooting a movie in knoxville and they're looking for a gaffer so i put your name in do you have can you send me like some examples of your work and some stuff and so i i wrote up um on the road when we were like traveling from san diego to los angeles for the next section of the of the shoot I, I I wrote on the in the car on my computer this big email and I put in all this stuff and I, I sent it into the producers and started having back and forth conversations with them and and the DP and this was a weird thing for me because I'd never been brought on to a project before that I didn't know anybody on right um, right just like you're the outsider totally cold yeah uh, I didn't know anyone um, I had just been recommended by somebody who had worked with these people previously on their last movie. Uh, and then I, I had actually, I, I ended up, there were two more people from Chattanooga who had like messaged me to say, Hey, somebody's calling around town looking for crew. We put your name in. Um, so I had like a very long phone conversation with the DP where we just kind of innately felt that we were going to get along. And it's funny because what I think was the big connection was that she was talking about the preliminary visuals that they were looking at for the movie and she started talking about paintings that they were looking at for lighting cues and it it clicked with me in such a weird way because when I first started getting into lighting um, the person that I studied first was Rembrandt like that was the first person who I heavily studied their work and tried to dissect the lighting from it because I was obsessed with Renaissance era paintings and they, they're so like the contrast and it, it's interesting because they they are making all of that up like it's like they're not sitting a subject I feel like in the light that they use they have the subject and then they create all of the light around them so after that I just knew that me and Greta were going to get along um, so I ended up convincing them to book me over the phone uh, I flew back from L.A. and then immediately went up to Knoxville to start pre-production on this movie. Uh, and it was it was a fantastic experience. Uh, it it taught me a lot about myself and what I'm capable of. Uh, and then, you know, we got home and and, you know, I had felt like I had done. When, when people say that something taught something a lot about themselves and what they're capable of, I find that that's oftentimes a very brief explanation for something that a lot is hiding underneath yeah yeah i mean for me it's i had been trying for a long time to achieve a a level of quality that i felt like was good and had not been able to do it yet like i i lit a lot of stuff that looked really good but there was always some level of of me being like it's not it's not quite right and i couldn't i couldn't figure out what it was that i was missing yeah um and this was the first project that like 
looking at all of the dailies afterwards, I was like, this is, this is a movie. Like, this is like an actual, like, this is a, this looks like something you'd see in a theater. Yeah. I feel like I originally got into art because it was a way to get praise from people. <laughs> I like right. I, I think that like photography really obsessed me in my early years because I you know I was maybe innately good at it and I could I could shoot photos and people would just talk on and on about how great they were. Um, and I think where there was this huge shift for me um, in this in this movie was like seeing seeing stuff in a frame and on the monitor. And it it didn't matter what everyone else said about it. I was getting so much personal satisfaction out of seeing it myself, which was something that like I hadn't, I hadn't experienced that before. I hadn't done something that was so good that I was impressed with it. Because um, a lot of a lot of the you, you get it right, like yes. especially when you, you you interact with a lot of people who aren't from the film world. Like people will see something you do and they'll be like, "Oh, that's so amazing." And in your head you're like, "Well, I have this list of 400 things that I see when I look at it." Right. Um and this was the first time that I looked and I was like, I was I was really really proud of it. Um and that was like like realizing that was interesting cuz like as a gaffer, you will never get recognition for the things that you do. Yeah, it that's is, true. It is the DP's it is the DP's work in a lot of senses, or at least that's the way the world will see it, and the, or even the director. Right. I mean, most 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 of the general world does isn't even granular enough to separate it from just like right. one name they associated with the making soul, the film. The sole work of a director, um, but like getting to a place where I was satisfied enough with pleasing myself, and of course, like pleasing the DP, because that for me is like, as long as the DP is saying that things are really great, like we're good. Yeah. Um, do you ever have a scenario when the DP is pleased, but you're, there, but you're just really not? Yes, yeah. yes, definitely. <laughs> um, and and like, there's, I think there's two sides of that coin because I've had instances where I was not happy with it, um, but the DP had to tell me that it was good enough for the amount of time that we had. Um, and I have had times where, it, with with that, it's like they're having to talk me off a cliff. You know, they're, they're, they're like, no, like, this is good. This is okay. But I have something that I don't really like about it. Uh, and then there, there are times where I'm, I'm overthinking it. And the DP's like, no, like, it's cool. Just like, this is going to work out and it's going to be fine. And like, um, that's, that's definitely a weird thing to deal with because usually it's the other way around. Yeah. Um, and I feel like in most circumstances, um, I don't know. Like, I feel like it's not that uncommon for the DP to come to me and be like, no, no, I like this. This is good. And I, I think that's probably some level of my own, like, deep set, like, self-deprecation issues where I don't feel like it's good enough yet. But they're like, no, trust us. It's going to be fine. Like, we wait till we see it and it plays out. And in most circumstances, it is fine. And I look at it going back and, you know, it's this one. It's easy to get something in your head that bothers you and to not be able to let it go. Um, and it's good to have somebody to be there sometimes to be like, no, let this go. It's going to be okay. Yeah, I feel like one of the most difficult things, whether it's being a DP or a gaffer or, um, you know, it applies to a lot of other aspects of, of uh, art and cinema as well. But I think like knowing, really knowing which battles to pick and knowing when, 
like which ones are you going to lose sleep over versus which ones are you just going to be able to let go of yeah at what point is it worth fighting the battle that, and yeah. that's huge in film because there's a million battles you could fight every day yeah uh, and being particular about it is important because you send a message when you only fight about things that really matter if you're very chill all of the time but sometimes you get really irate about something people realize you're being very serious right when you do well you're not the boy that cried wolf right exactly right like if you if you save you store up your political capital a little bit and then you spend it when the time comes yes exactly <laughs> I and mean, that's, that's that's exactly what it is yeah um so I derailed you off of your right. off of your story though so y you uh we'd gotten into this year yeah right? so I did uh um light from light which is the the movie I did in Knoxville and I met this DP Greta uh, and we got along super well immediately, um, more so than almost any DP I've ever worked with. It was, it was weird. We just, everything made sense when we talked to each other. Uh, and I, I felt, I felt very good about what had happened, but you know, Greta was so much more established than me coming out of this movie. And, you know, they only hired me because I was in Tennessee and they needed somebody who was local. Um, so I'm, I was, I was in the state where I was like, where do things go from here? Like, um, we had talked some and she had been like, yeah, no, I really love working with you. Like, I think the, the exact words she used were you're in trouble. Um, and, uh, yeah. what she mean by that? What she means was, uh, she owns me now. <laughs> uh, and, and so it wasn't until after that film that I really kind of put stuff together where she, she called me a week after the movie and said, Hey, I'm doing another movie in New York. Do you want to come? Uh, and I was like, yes, yes, I will go anywhere. Um, and so within two weeks of the end of production, I was, I was up in New York, uh, New York city doing pre-pro on the next film with Greta. Um, and, and that was, um, it was an even better experience because we went into it knowing each other and having this confidence in each other's work. And it was just a really good, like all around experience that kind of ended with a conversation where we were like, yes this is a thing now like we are a pair you know like she doesn't seem to want to work with any other gaffers or ever have any intention of doing it uh and that was that was the shift that Sounds like, like you're describing a romance it, here. no it is and it's funny <laughs> because like every time i talk about it and it, it it's so similar like it, it is it is a it is a business relationship but it's like a very close relationship when you can get a gaffer and a dp who want to work together so much um and so, so that was kind of the point that everything shifted. Um, you know, she's, she's looking that she's the one I'm going to do this movie with in February. Um, she's already talking about a movie after that. Um, and so it's really interesting because, you know, from my perspective, I am writing her coattails right now. Yeah. Um, I, I managed to connect myself with somebody who was established enough that they're pulling down consistent work in the narrative market. And I'm just following along. Uh, and it's, it's funny cause it's so cliched the way people talk about breaking in and how it's like, Oh yeah, you break into the industry and then you're in, but that's exactly what's happening. Like it, it was, it was this one moment of, of I, I did a movie for some guy and he happened to EP a movie for people and then recommend me to them. It was like the the path of how I got here was so lucky, it seemed like. And then it was like, after that, it's like everything's different now. 
Yeah, well, it it is it was lucky in a sense, but not in another. In other words, uh, if you use gambling as a metaphor, which I'm I'm not a big gambler, but if you if you got enough bets out, you're going to win a few of them, right? <laughs> and uh, you know, if you if you're good to work with and you work with enough people over enough of a period of time, it increases your odds. I guess is what I'm saying. The chances of what happened to you happening goes up the more you're just sort of more time you're willing to spend in the trench essentially right. yeah and it, it's like it's like it didn't it 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 did happen overnight but the process to get there was not overnight you know if i hadn't spent right. five years grinding out all of these meaningless commercial projects i i wouldn't have been prepared to do something like and, this and you were learning too right all that you know time. it was it was i was i was i was sharpening my tools so that when the opportunity came up for me to pull out all of the stops and really, really do something, I was I was ready technically to like yeah. accomplish that. I remember a quote. I can't think of who said it, but uh, one of these uh, famous cinematographers, I think from the '60s, he was saying that he got into a situation where he was really afraid not to say yes because he got into a group like what you're talking about. And they were making all these big movies that everybody, you know, that are that are historically very important now. And he said he just he couldn't stop because he knew that if he said no, it would stop the to, to one. It would stop the train like like this same group of people were going out and working over and over and over mm -hmm. again together. Is that something that is that what she meant when she said you're in trouble? Yeah, I think I think it is. I, I mean, I think there was some level of she meant that like she, she meant that she was going to call me every time and that I was going to have to travel all over the place for the rest of my life now that that's going to be my life and and I was fine with that but that I get what you mean it's like you're you're terrified that it's going to dry up at any point um it's funny I had a long conversation with uh talent on my last movie one of the actors uh and he was playing a character who was the worst person like he was the villain of the film and does these like atrocious acts in the movie um and he he was really struggling with that where he was like i don't i don't like this character and i did not want to play this character but you can't say no because the second you say no people will stop calling uh and that's definitely something that i feel in my career right now that, and and i from the other side of it that i'm worried about is that i'm spending a lot of time you know a movie is a month and a half where i'm on the road somewhere um and that's a month and a half of people here in town calling me to do stuff for them and me having to say no to them yeah even though i worked very very hard to establish myself in this market as the person to use um so what's terrifying to me is that people will stop calling me in between movies to do commercial work, which I absolutely need to pay my bills because as much fun as narrative movies are, they do not pay very well. Like that's that's right. the dichotomy of the industry. You're working a lot more days, but the day rate is not as good. Right. Oftentimes. Um, it's more consistent for less money. Now, these are not union shows you're working no, on. No, I'm, I'm currently non-union, and that is the next big hurdle for me to... I don't even know how the union works. I, like, I need to learn all of that stuff because it will become a thing. Um, but yeah, currently, you know, everything I've done has been in the sub-million dollar category, um, which is which is very light, and the day rates are 
you know, I will sometimes make in a week on a feature what I will make in one day on a commercial. Yeah. Um, so there's this fear that like people will forget about me because I'm not available to work with them. Uh, so it's like, how do you decide, you know, and, and the decision obviously I've made is I'm following passion. I'm going to keep taking the movie projects as the number one priority. Um, but it is, it is a fear. You feel a little bit trapped. Um, how much of that do you think is uh, anxiety and how much of it do you think is really truly reality? Like if you said no, would that be the last time your phone rang or would? I think there <laughs> is a lot of reality to it. I think it's less of a problem here in Chattanooga because um, there aren't a lot of people who I feel like could be compared to me as a gaffer. There are a lot of really talented gaffers in this market. Um, but I, I, you sort of carved out a, I, I, I have yeah. carved out a little bit of a niche and, and because of that, like, I think that even when I'm gone, people might feel a little bit like they're settling. Um, so I, I don't worry about it much because it's a small, and especially because all of the production companies in town here, I'm like friends with the people, you know, it's, it's, it's not so much a work relationship as it's like people that I'm friends with and I hang out with. Yeah. You get a, a a chance to hang out with your friends yeah. again. Kind of. um, it's part of it anyway. So it's like, yeah, there's this fear that like you have to keep going or things will stop. And even, even more so the thing that's really freaked me out lately is to do things that are, are kind of on a level that I haven't done before and feel like I have now put myself in a position where I have to be very serious about my life. Mm. Um, I like, I think that you can, easily attest to this as somebody who's known me for a long time that I'm very like flippant and I, I tend to kind of just like I, I kind of just like ride things out and just kind of go with the flow I've never I, I, I work hard at what I do when I'm on set but like I, I haven't really been like really really grinding at it right like it's, yeah. it's, it's a fun thing that pays my bills but now I'm in a position where I have to be really, really serious about this if I'm going to continue this wave, right? This, yeah. this kind of like this wave of work. It's, it's, it's like, it's like I feel like I need to keep up, or it's going to go past me, and I'm going to miss it. Uh, which is that's weird for me because I, I have enjoyed the freelance life and that I've had a lot of time to kind of do my own things and do other stuff and be kind of just like not incredibly incredibly serious about this um but the fear is now that like if if i don't keep getting better uh i'm not going to be able to keep up with greta as she grows and her career grows um it's like you mentioned the union thing um we are not that far shy of starting to do projects that are landing in the budget range where the union's going to start becoming a thing and yeah. i can't work on union shows unless i join the union yeah well so um I am by no means an expert on the union, but I have spoken to a number of people who are in various unions, as well as speaking with, like in New Orleans, I, I, I parked my bus outside the union headquarters there nice. and uh, and did interviews outside and, and went in and talked with, with a bunch of the folks there. And uh, that was the local 478, I think, which is Gripen Electric and... Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure what else, but I know that that's if you were there, that's the union you'd be right. in. But uh, it actually puts you in a good position if you're on a shoot that gets flipped. Right. Because a lot of times they're willing to uh, 
be a little bit lenient about some of the prerequisites that you're really supposed to have. If you're attached to a project and they want, if, if it's in their interest to see the, the project flip, they're not going to make people quit on the project. They're just going to say, okay, well, you've got a fast track right. uh, to get in the union, probably. You know? Yeah, and that's, you know, that's generally the, the thought, right? It's like, because I... To join the union from the ground floor isn't really an option for me right now, and it's mostly tied up in pride, but it's like if I were to join without, you know, hours or without getting flipped in, I would probably have to go back to being an electric, <laughs> and then I would have to work as a best boy, and then I could get enough hours to be a gaffer again, which is something that I just, I don't think I could, like, mentally handle. Yeah. Um, so it's definitely, it's like, it's one of those things where it's like kind of waiting to get flipped in. Uh, but that's a double-edged sword, too, because, you know, I mean, for one, if the union shows up to a project and starts trying to flip it, you don't want to be the person that's trying to help them flip it, because that will look really bad on you, mm. like, because, like, the movies don't want to be flipped, like, well, in a lot of circumstances. The producers don't right. want the movie to be flipped, um, yeah. In a lot of circumstances, that could kill a project because of sure. the amount of money that has to be put in. Um, but it's like you said, it's also the easiest way to get, you know, flipped in to having hours as a gaffer. Yeah. And then, you know, you then you sign your papers and you're in. You know, it's uh, and again, I'm not an expert. So anybody listening to this, uh, hopefully they're hopefully I'm not way off base with this. <laughs> but it, it, my sense, certainly from talking with people both in the industry and people who are at the union level, like who who are working for the union you know, in most markets, working, doing the kinds of trade that you are, um, it's really not that big of a deal to work both union and non-union shoots. In mm -hmm. fact, they'll tell you, like, you know, you need to, you need to put food on the table this year. If you know, if you've got some non-union projects to play on, go ahead and do it. Now, I'm, I know that's not the case every time, but I know that it is, it, it is the case in some markets. Mm -hmm. And I think it's less about like, oh, who flipped this project? I think. You know, like old fashioned was not a union project, but the union totally knew it was going on. It's not like you can't go in and shoot a film somewhere and it be a secret. It's uh, it's more about if the union sizes up a project and says this actually should be a union project. Mm -hmm. We need to go and and sort this out. You know, uh, there are plenty of projects that come in that they're like, oh, that's that's not a union show yeah. like and it shouldn't like going trying to flip that over would just be pointless for us so i i, I don't know and maybe hey, people listening are probably yelling at their uh, headphones or something right. i don't know but that's certainly the impression i've gotten mm -hmm. from the conversations that i've had yeah and i'll say there's definitely a world where that's probably the case because it's i think it's like it's it, it for one it depends whether you're talking to people from the union or people who aren't um <laughs> right. But I, I had on the, the Knoxville movie, um, we we went out to uh, we went out after set one night with our main talent, who was Jim Gaffigan um, and uh, a reporter spotted us um, and was trying to, like, shake people down from information. And, you know, everybody, nobody said anything. But the next day, an article went out in the Knoxville news that like, oh, Jim Gaffigan's in town shooting a movie. And uh the, the AD comes up to me 
the next day and, and hands me his phone and he's got a phone from the union an email that uh, says, hey, we have just caught wind of a movie being shot in Knoxville starring Jim Gaffigan. If anybody has any information on this, please let us know. Uh, and that was an interesting scenario because it was like, A, it was like, don't tell anybody about this because we don't want to freak anyone out because it was like such a low budget that it would the project would have died if they'd found us. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting because I think there's two levels of like whose side you're looking at it from. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, but it... it it's definitely I mean that's definitely how I plan to get in because I, I I can't work my way back up as as much as that's probably hubris like it would be it would be too much of a damage to my ego <laughs> yeah um, which I think is like weirdly important in film like uh, usually you don't think of I, I the the term ego is probably not best but confidence right like it's really important to to have that so it's like I want to yeah. kind of maintain that level of uh, believing in myself Um but yeah, I don't. We'll we'll have to see how the whole union thing That's, shakes be out. That'll interesting. That, that is yeah. that is my kind of big hurdle to kind of like figure out in the next couple years. Uh, and a big part of that is that, you know, camera local six hundred is is nationwide, right? Yeah. The G and E unions are not. Yeah. Um, the G and E unions are very localized. Um, so like, if I wanted to to do union stuff. I would need to usually be in the union that's in that area. I believe you can pick like a remote and a home base. Yeah. Um, so, so getting serious about that probably means. Well, camera is the same way. The union may be nationwide, but you still have to declare your, uh, okay. like you have to say, okay, here's my home base and here's my secondary. Yeah. As I believe. Yeah. So, so that's, that's another thing where it's like, if I'm going to be serious about this at this point, I need to move to a major market. Um, so that I can join up there uh, and get hours there. Uh, so that's just interesting too, because it's a whole thing of I've been very content to live in Chattanooga and travel for work, um, but I'm finally getting to the place where if I'm going to be serious about it, I need to look at going somewhere else to to start that process. Yeah. Yeah. Well, very interesting. Okay, so you talked about Belly of the Whale being. Uh, transformative in the sense that you caught a glimpse of what a certain kind of career would look like. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was interesting, you know, because I don't think belly of the whale was extremely formative on what an actual set is like, because it was very yeah. much a lot of students and it was, it was, you know, you, me and um, Theo, the first AD who were bringing a lot of the information of like, what sets are like to the table um but what it what it really did for me was let me see a what it's like to work with a big kit of gear okay um that was we had you know a lot of lighting equipment to work with and i also had a, a pretty decent number of people working under me yeah you had some you had some uh, grip and electric right team. so yeah. like it was it was one it was like realizing that I can accomplish so much when I have the proper tools and people to do it. But also there was some level of um, realizing that being a gaffer wasn't as physical as I thought it was going to be. You know, like in, in a lot of stuff that I do, it's me and one guy and I'm setting all the lights and moving all the stands and flags and stuff. Um, but starting to get into bigger things and seeing 
that like really in a perfect world, I'm not doing that. You know, I'm with the DP by the monitor and I'm just delegating those tasks out to people. So that was that was what kind of that really appealed to me, too, was the idea that like I could be in a more cushy role in a lot of ways rather yeah. than having to essentially be, you know, um, like a having a having a physical job, which isn't something that really appealed to me. Um, but just, yeah, like, I don't know, like belly of the whale really. And it was the, it was the same thing with like putting out work that was of a quality that I was really satisfied with. Yeah. Um, and specifically with belly of the whale, the, the director of photography was also a student. Um, so I had a lot of like, I had a lot of wiggle room. I could basically do whatever I wanted and nobody was going to try to fight me on it because I was more in it than the people who were in my direct chain of command. Right. Um, but I don't know. It, it just, it, something about it really opened my eyes. And I think, you know, the, the second movie immediately after getting to like very quickly kind of put to, put to use some of the things that I learned. Yeah. Um, cause that was the other thing was I, you know, I was doing a lot of commercial work and you kind of get better, but like the amount that I learned over the course of belly of the Whale was more than I had probably learned on any shoot for the entire year. Um, mm. because you're put in so many more, tight spaces you know like like you're there's a lot more there's more times where you're put in a position where you really have to solve a problem right something yeah. that you you don't usually come up against uh and that was that was great for me because i could learn from those experiences because co- it was narrative work i think yeah corporate like, industrial i think it's narrative like there's some level of one of the pieces was in narrative thinking about how things that you shoot play out over the course of the whole movie right um say on a commercial where you're shooting one scene even like a narrative commercial you're shooting you know one scene with one aesthetic in this space and it's totally standalone and it's just it's there but in a movie you have to think about how things interact with each other um and you have to think about how your aesthetic changes sometimes even in the same space like how do you how do you do this scene in this space in a way that feels different from the way you did it a week ago, um, or by the other side of that coin, how do you shoot in this space and it looks exactly the same way it looks when you shot it a week ago because the two of them have to match each other. Right. Um, and that was definitely a thing on Belly of the Whale with just like you know the time of day we were shooting and where the sun was and like it not being in the same place but needing to feel like it was in the same place. Um, that was a challenge that you don't come up against in commercial because you shoot it all out in a day or two. Um, right. And, the, that, and the, there's no continuity. Yeah. It's all self-contained. Right. To, so to, to kind of maintain, you know, a visual standard and aesthetic that you shoot, that you start shooting, to maintain that over the entire life of a film is a lot more challenging. Um, and you also just find yourself in so many different spaces. You know, it's... it. Belly of the Whale was very contained because it was all in this kind of like one physical location, but we shot in, you know, five or six different rooms in this school and then a couple of offsite places. So it was like there was a lot of different aesthetics to pull off. There was a lot of different, you know, setups, whereas, you know, in a commercial, it's usually like, here's our setup and then we tweak it for each angle and then and that's it. Yeah. Um, well, I guess part of the reason I'm I'm drilling into that a little bit, uh, aside of from having some personal connection to Belly of the Whale, is I think what you're getting at is something a, a lot of people really long for, is this moment of clarity when they have 
a career or workplace experience and they're you, they're like that that is what i want to do yeah uh because then you know like then you know what it is you're trying to chase you know yeah it's it's life changing in a weird way because it, it's it was after after the second movie after belly of the whale that i started kind of just like saying that that was the thing um and it was weird because all it was was me saying to myself that i'm going to keep doing this um but it felt like my whole life was different because it yeah. it was definitely the first time in my life i actually had like a real goal really like like i had i had had goals of like achieving things in film and like but like i, I, I don't know like i I definitely, when I was in college, didn't think I was going to do this. I went to film school largely to avoid deciding what I was going to do with my life. Um, yeah. It sounded like it was interesting, but it had this idea around it that, like, well, yeah, it's cool, but, like, nobody's going to have a job in film. And then there was this level of, like, okay, I can have a job in film. And you kind of, like, slowly work your way up and do bigger and bigger things. Um, but then deciding that I was a gaffer, it was, like, that was, like, the last piece. That was, like, I... I know what my life is going to be from here on out. And I don't, it's like one less thing to worry about. I, I don't know. There's just some level of feeling like, you know what you want, which I hadn't experienced at all up until that yeah. point. Like I, I could have said before that, that I was going to be a musician. Cause that was still a thing that I was really passionate about, but it was like being like, no, this is, this is my career. And the thing that I'm going to do, it, it, it's, it's like freeing in a weird way. Was it, uh, did it have something to do with finally sort of seeing how a certain kinds of thing could be? That's a terribly ineloquent way of saying it. But, like, I think sometimes we don't know what we want until we sort of catch a vision for a way something could be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was like, like, Belly of the Whale was not... It was not what a real movie is in some senses, yeah. right? But it was it was enough that I saw it. Like it was enough that I was like, okay, like this is, this is the real thing, right? And it was you know the program at Southern is all narrative focused, um, so we're we're very much taught, I think from the get go we were taught the correct way to do things, um, and in the real world and in commercial, people doing that is super rare, right? It's like the little things like okay, we're going to do a blocking rehearsal and then we're going to do a marking rehearsal. It was like all the little steps to make a good movie that we were taught in school. When you come out in the commercial world, nobody's doing it because some of them don't know because they're not from that world and they're just from commercial and then some of them just can't afford it or just don't understand. It was like Belly of the Whale showed me that there is a world where I felt like things were being done properly. Because okay. that is something that bothers me is that there's so many times on small commercial shoots where I'm so frustrated because they're not doing things properly, but they're things that aren't my business and you have to stay in your lane. Like I can't go to the AD and be like, hey, like I think we should, you should do rehearsals properly because you're not doing rehearsals right. Like um, being being on a, on a narrative set, it was like ugh, all of these things that I've always felt like were the right way to do things. Th these people care about doing it that way because they understand that it makes a difference. And that has been the thing that has driven this stake between me and commercial work is now realizing that I feel like people don't care about it like they care about narrative movies. It's the 
passion that gets it. It's like like everybody wants so bad for this thing to happen and it's not because they're getting paid for it. It's because they believe in it or it's because they want to see like their creative vision brought to life. Yeah. Um, well, you're de you're describing independent <laughs> yes, narrative. Right. Because <laughs> there's a whole world out there, you know, uh, you know, you're, we're talking about union shoots and so on where people really are just doing it for the paycheck, but they are still, but the machine is running in a sophisticated way. Right. Still. <laughs> yes. It, it, at yeah. the very least there's, they're all knowledgeable enough that it's being done properly at that level. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say sometimes people get, um, yeah, like you were saying, the division between grip and electric and all those things, uh, all that stuff gets more hammered in, you know, yes. as you go up to bigger shoots. But well, that's in that's very interesting, and I, I hearing that perspective is actually very uh, gratifying, I guess, in a sense, because it, it, in se it, you know, uh, belly of the whale, that experience is not like you know every other narrative film being made, but. It is a real movie, and yeah. uh, and to hear that, like, sort of that that it felt comfortable because things were being approached in a systematic way that, like, is is more associated with the correct way to do things. Yeah, that's that's no, yeah. That's, I mean, it great. was it. You could feel it, and you could feel that these people were trained in the same way that I was trained. Okay, um, which is something that I've always felt that you know the program has done really well at southern is like really teaching traditional hollywood filmmaking you know like it's it, it teaches more than what you'll get to do in a lot of circumstances but that was you know that was the first project where i felt like things were really being done right or at least like people were trying to do things right right so now cu curious like uh like the project that you worked on with uh jim gaffick like light from light light from light yes. yeah like how did how did those compare it was incredibly low budget um but all of the people who were working on it were very very professional um yeah like like the producers like specialize in low budget films um and they're you know the them as a production company was is is like highly highly established in the in the um independent film market right now i would say they might be the top like established production team in the independent film market right now, at least the ones that I hear about the most. Um, but it was, it was interesting because, you know, it was approached from the same way in a lot of circumstances. And the, to me, the big difference was, you know, students in departments versus like very self-sufficient, um, you know, department heads, people who I feel like were on the same level of, or vastly exceeded my level of experience. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot that kind of like makes things go really smoothly in that area. Um, but by and large, you know, the nuts and bolts of what was going down were, were the same, right? Like yeah. it was, it was the, the process was there. It was, it was really just, you know, the difference of what each person brought and how, how much was brought to the table by each different department, you know? I, I've observed a lot of different scenarios and, you have one scenario where nobody knows what they're doing, right. really, you know, <laughs> and, you know, who knows what could happen there. Um, and then you have a situation where there are a handful of people in the right leadership positions and it makes a truly transformative difference. Mm -hmm. You know, like there are a lot of people that don't really know what they're doing around, 
but there are there are key people that do right and and they can make a huge difference you know and then also you see the situation where everybody on set pretty much really knows what they're doing except the person in charge yep. and that's its own thing and actually can work you know um and then when everybody just knows what they're doing yeah like really knows what they're doing you know that's yeah that's a cool no, it's interesting thing. because you literally just described the four movies that i've done um, okay like <laughs> you know belly of the whale is um solid keys leading people who maybe don't know a lot but are really willing to learn yeah um I think that, you know, the feature I did after that was like a really solid team with a director who was a total lunatic uh, <laughs> and and like a YouTuber. And everybody was just like, I don't know, we just got to make this movie. And we made the movie in spite of him. Um, I think Light from Light was an example of everybody on the team is, is, is incredibly talented. Um, and then I, I would say that the third one is was probably more in the realm of... Um, uh, that was interesting because I would say everybody on the team was extremely talented except the producers unit. The producers unit was not um, okay. super good. And that was interesting because it created a whole bunch of foundational issues. But it, it's so it's always something different, right? Yeah. Um, that's what that's what's great about it. It's like the, to think that people go and do the same thing every day <laughs> as a job um, is crazy to me because like filmmaking is great because you're going to walk into something and who knows what's going to happen? It's like a whole like surprise bag of of challenges and things to overcome. Um, but there's such a big dichotomy of like what it could be, you know. Stories are always interesting. You've told some stories. I I've had some some interesting experiences that I think were very formative to me in the way um, I work now. Um, I think one of the things that I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out lately is how to carry myself on set. Um, because there's, there's this, especially with G&E, G&E people are usually very gruff, yes, angry, <laughs> um, and, and demanding. And that's not, that's not my personality at all. Yeah. Um, and trying to find that middle ground has been really tough for me. And I think one of the experiences that really kind of like shaped me feeling like I I'm doing the right thing by trying to be myself rather than trying to conform to, to the, the culture of the, of the film industry um, was I was on a movie in LA. Um, the director was difficult to work with to say the least. Um, lots of yelling at people on the crew. Um, and we were like draining overtime at the beginning of the movie, just like really bad. And it was largely due to the, his leadership. Um, but for some reason, and I think this is common, the G&E department got targeted as the problem. Yeah. Um, so we were on the first Thursday of a four week shoot and uh, we come into work and everybody's acting kind of weird. And uh, you know, we have this little sidebar meeting between me, the key grip and the, um, first assistant uh, director and the first AD is like hey like I just want to know like nobody's getting fired but like we got to figure out how to get this movie on track and blah 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 um, and there was like you, you always know when somebody starts with nobody's getting fired right exactly but, but <laughs> what's implied there is but but somebody might but somebody <laughs> might um, and it was an odd day and there was 
there was this guy on set and nobody knew who he was or what he was doing there. Uh, and then after we finished rapping, Tim, the DP who, who had brought me out for the project, went outside and talked with the director for an hour plus. Um, and, and so when we were on the ride home, everything kind of like came out to me because he kind of like what had happened was, was that the director decided I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and he had showed up to work that day with the intention of firing me. Uh, and the guy who was there on set was the gaffer who was there to replace me. Um, and uh, when the producer heard about this, he was like, have you talked to Tim about this yet? And the director was like, no, it's my movie. I can do what I want. And the producer was like, actually, <laughs> you can't. <laughs> um, and if you want to fire Matt, like you have to have Tim do it. Um, because you can't like you, the director has to stay in their lane just as much as everybody else on set has to stay in their lane. Um, so, you know, we got through the day, uh, I wasn't fired. Tim put his foot down and he said that the director was actually the problem. And like, we were having trouble getting like the stuff we were getting wasn't looking very good. And it was this, the director kept trying to like, I would light it and he, he had done horror films previously and really didn't want this to feel like a horror film. So he had me continuously fill the shadow sides until we were shooting one-to-one -one ratios for most of the movie. And the whole movie is night interiors. So like oh, weird. you as a DP can understand how, yeah, all of our night interiors, the whole first part of this movie looks like we were shooting a sitcom because like he wouldn't let me use shadows at all. Um, and it ended up being this thing where we got through that week and I went with Tim to the director's house and sat down and had a like a long heart to heart with him where, you know, I was I was like, I'm going to stay and I'm going to do this movie, but you need to get out of my world because part of the problem was that he had his fingers in my world too much, which isn't uncommon. But the issue was that I wasn't confident enough to tell him to go away. And to tell him that he was wrong and this is my job and he needs to do his job and I'll do my job. Right. Um, so we had this conversation um, and for the rest of the movie, things went very smoothly. But it was it was eye opening to me in a lot of ways. Um, for one, um, the key grip who I did not know previously um, and is now like one of my main key grips. Um, when they had come to him that morning and told him that they were going to try to fire me, he said that if if you guys fire Matt, I'm going to walk and I'm going to take the entire G&E department with me and you guys are going to be shit out of luck. Uh, and that was interesting to me because I, I didn't I didn't know him, you know, and it was this level of like that was that was because we were in the same department, which meant like we were on the same team, regardless yes. of what else yeah. happened. Um, and it was it was an interesting project for the rest of the movie because you feel you feel like you weren't doing good enough, but you kind of got to stay on a technicality. So it's like, I felt like I had to a do really good from here on out. Um, and B there's just always this awkward level of like, you know, I'm working with a director who we all know he tried to fire me and we all know that he couldn't. Um, yeah, that's a weird situation. Yeah. It created this level of tension, um, throughout the whole project and he would, he would get really angry a lot. Um, and I was maintaining this level of, I am calm. I'm not going to fight back. And in in one of the things I realized was that was one of the things that he had tagged me as being inexperienced because on his last movie, his gaffer would just tell him to shut up and go away. 
Oh, interesting. Uh, and so he he read my my lack of confrontation as inexperience. Um, and I, yeah, and I and I would say that that's uh, that happens. I, right. I, I mean, you oftentimes you can differentiate experienced people from inexperienced people by how how and when they're willing to pipe up. Yeah, and it, it, it it's weird because I, I think he was crazy, but what he said was like incredibly valid to me that like I was not fighting on things that I should have fought on. And it was because yeah. at the time I was so new that I didn't really have the confidence to push back against somebody or had really worked in the industry long enough to know that I actually was allowed to do that and wasn't going to yeah. get fired for, you know, yelling at the person who's above me. It's it's tough because a, a, a lot of what you do in some of these things, it, it applies equally to cinematography, I would say, as well, is sometimes somebody will be telling you to do X, Y, or Z, and you kind of need to know when to literally do X, Y, or Z, and when to be like, I think I understand what this person is saying. It's not X, Y, or Z, but I understand what they're getting at yeah. and trying to give them what they actually are asking for, even if that's not literally what they're asking yeah, for. Yeah, right. And, and it, just saying that sounds kind of arrogant, I guess, but like it's legit part of the job. Yeah, like, right. Uh, I mean, you have to, like, communication is important and you have to understand when somebody means well but doesn't know what they're talking about. Um, and and to try to accomplish what they're saying, and in a in a director gaffer relationship, um, or in some circumstances, a director DP relationship, that's super important because directors will babble off a bunch of nonsense about how they think a thing should look, and a DP has to decode that and yes. turn it into like a real life thing. And sometimes there's that between the DP and the gaffer as well. Well, I think one thing that when you when you start working with somebody and then as you continue a partnership, it's developing a shared uh, terminology, a shared right. language. Like, oh, when they say this, that means this. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. There, there's a lot of that. And and that was a thing that Tim struggled with on that project was just trying to, like, condense all of the things that this guy would say and and turn it into reality. Um but it was it was interesting for me because I, I maintained my level of non-confrontation and I wasn't sure how that was working out for me. Uh, and we got to the last day of the project um, and everybody was really heated this day um, because we were shooting car stuff. Last days are usually either great or terrible. Right. And there's either way you look at it, there's some level of like people have given up the will to care about the movie. Yeah. Um, and and it's there's this funny thing where it'll be like, somebody will knock over a light stand and just be like last day and and that's just kind of the oh whatever it's last day and anytime anyone messes up everybody cheers last day but like um we were going to shoot a car on on all black in a studio for this poor man's process and i had set up this huge poor man's process setup and for those of you who maybe don't know um poor man's process is when you shoot a car in a studio and you put a bunch of lights up that move around and feel like other cars passing it or it driving under street lights um and the director walks into set and it's like actually we're shooting half of this on green screen and half of this on poor man's process uh so we had to go back and we were on a green psych and we had matted the entire psych out and we had to go back and pull all of the stuff back to like see green around the edge of the car but like it's also reflections are a thing generally if you're shooting a car on a green screen you need the green screen to be like really far behind it so that you're not just like seeing the reflections in it 
it made our first setup take forever. And like I had a I, I had a serious moment where I was like, I told him, I was like, we're doing this, but this is stupid and this is not what we talked about. And if we don't make our day to day, it is your fault. It is not my fault. Um, and this put him in a pretty bad mood. Uh, and so we were shooting some stuff in the car uh, and we had finished lighting and they called for first team. Which is when they bring the actors right, on they bring versus the, the stand-ins. And uh, our actors and our stand-ins had different skin complexions. Yeah, which is not um, uncommon at a certain well, level. Yeah, our, I mean, our stand-ins were the PAs. Um, right, right. <laughs> so, so when we got in and the actors got into the car, the director goes to the monitor, immediately starts calling roll. Tim, the DP, um, calls me on the radio and it's like, hey, uh, I think the, the girl on the right is a little bit too hot so like let's dial down her light and the controls for the lights were in the car um we were using baby kinos taped to the back of the seat so i leaned in the open window uh and dialed back the light while they're slating the camera they pull the slate and tim looks at it and he he's okay now split the difference on that you little too close to the sun and i i lean in and i i dial back and uh i hear on the other side of set uh well, I guess I'll just come back when you're ready. And like the in, the amount of curse words littered in this sentence is extravagant. And he starts yelling and he walks across the studio yelling about how they're not ready for him yet. And why was he called in when they're not ready? And he walks out into the parking lot where the production is set up outside under tents. And like everybody is standing dead silent in this studio and we can just hear him losing his mind outside of the building. Uh, and like my friend who was who was on the production unit was like, yeah, he he actually yelled so much he kind of started crying. Um, it was it, I I have never been yelled at by any adult like that before in my life. I mean, basically, if you want to compare it to something, go watch that video of Christian Bale freaking out at a gaffer for crossing his eyeline. And it, well, was, it was a DP. It oh, was, it was a, a DP. Okay. Shane Hurlbut. Yeah. It was Shane Hurlbut. Yeah. <laughs> But it, it, it was so weird because I didn't know how to respond to it. And I wanted to, because I had had enough at that point. And I was, when he came back in, I was going to give it to him. Like, you you can't just freak out and yell at me for doing my job. Because that's what I was doing. I was, I was making sure we went that extra 10% to make sure that the movie was, like, really good. Um, but I didn't. And I just bit my tongue when he came back in because it was the last day. And like, if we couldn't get him to calm down and like pay attention, we weren't going to be able to finish the movie. Uh, and I was standing outside cause I, I would go in when they were setting up. And then when he came in to shoot, I would leave and I, I would go outside cause I just didn't want any interaction with him. Uh, and the, the producer came up to me and he was like, Hey, like, I, I want you to know that like, we see what's really going on here now we we really appreciate that you haven't like exacerbated the situation or elevated it to a different level uh and i know that's really hard uh but i just want you to know that like we in the producers unit have your back and like we're not gonna like let him do anything crazy like you'll get paid and everything um but like thank you for making sure that we can keep him calm enough to get through this day and and that was this moment where i realized that like there's something to it because some people might read things like that as inexperience because they're used to gaffers being really mean and angry. Um, but there are people who, who really, really can see how difficult it is to do that sometimes and respect yeah. that you're, you're making a decision for the, the betterment of the project. Um, 
and that was when I kind of decided that I was going to kind of keep that aesthetic that the that the way I carried myself on set was going to be a person that somebody liked to work with not somebody who was very good but like very confrontational right uh and on the Knoxville movie it that was the thing that was that made it work because the the producers on that movie right off the bat recognized that I was I was not you know I was in this for the betterment of the project and that I was going to be like a good calm person to work with um and so that's been something that I've been trying to find is that middle ground of what do you not fight on and what do you do fight on to show enough that you know what you're doing, you know, on another movie I was on where we were having trouble with the producers. There was a day uh, where we had worked an all-nighter and it was me and the G&E team and uh, a couple PAs and some of the camera people standing around at the exterior set um, and the producers were like all up at the house and we're waiting for them to pick us up and nobody comes in a pass van to pick us up uh and uh we see the one of the pass vans drive off down the road with nobody in it um and uh i snapped a little bit and i grabbed one of the radios from the pas and let a a flurry of angry things into it at the producers that they you have got to have this van here right now to pick up my guys because we're not going to stand out here in the cold all morning waiting to go back home and sleep because you guys are up doing whatever you're doing and um the van showed up to pick us up and it's filled with all of the production stuff it's like crafty and everything (laughs) is piled in the van and there's one row of four seats and i had 10 people um (laughs) So I get the radio again and I'm like, are you guys, are you, are you serious right now? Like what? I don't, I don't, and, and like, they were like, oh, I don't know, make people fit or whatever. And I was like, okay, well, here's what's going to happen. Uh, we took all the stuff out of the van and we threw it on the ground <laughs> and I called the producers and I said, uh, we dumped all your stuff on the ground here on set. You can figure out how to deal with that. And we got in the van and left. Um, and that was probably not the best way. <laughs> to handle that like in hindsight um but it it was one of those scenarios where for me the way i viewed it is that was not about that wasn't about me like that was about my crew right and and that's where i've started to find where i'm drawing the line of like i will get very angry and confrontational if i don't feel like the production is taking care of my crew because i think that's my priority as as being in charge is like making sure that they're being taken care of and that they're being paid um, so it's interesting. I, I don't know. Like, I don't know where I stand yet. Um, but on some level doing that, uh, it, it I think it was good <laughs> because it, it's like, you need to be prepared sometimes to get a point across. And I, I had a very, very long conversation where, um, at the rap party, we sat and we talked for a really long time and I apologized and tried to like frame my day for her so that you could see why I was in that mindset um, but there's this thing where it's like, you know, you say things on a movie set and then you all go home and it doesn't happen. It doesn't exist. Like, right? right. Like what happens on set doesn't carry on to the next day. It doesn't carry on to when you get off. Like you have to be able to let things go and just move on with your life. Yeah. Um, that's actually one of the things that's kind of cool about filmmaking. I think that, you know, the, oftentimes it puts people who are very tired in high pressure situations and people just like it, it affects different people differently yeah. but oftentimes people say things that 
could be considered regrettable. And, uh, but also sometimes it just leads to a certain directness. Mm-hmm. And also a willingness, like, like everybody just, you know, you, you don't beat around the bush a lot. Yeah, you know? right. <laughs> it's like, you just say the thing that needs to be said. Yeah, because I definitely, I'm the type of person where if I'm going to say something that I think is like a difficult thing to talk about or maybe going to... I don't know, like hurt the feelings of the person that I'm going to say it to. I spend an awfully long amount of time front loading it beforehand right. being like, this is kind of like, this is the world I'm coming from. And this is why I'm going to do this. But like on films, like you have to know when you don't have time to do that. And you just yeah. need to like, you need to get my point very quickly. And unfortunately the easiest way to do that is to yell it at you very directly. Yeah. Um, and so there's, I think it's like, it's like a, it's like a seesaw kind of thing where you're kind of always standing in the middle trying to decide when you need to lean to one side and when you need to lean to the other. Yeah. Um, Your whole story of being on a kind of in an unfortunate position, I might, I guess you might yeah. say, that is not an isolated thing. I think if you work long enough, you're going to be in that situation. Right. Yeah. No. And that was, <laughs> um, that was like coming out of it was like realizing that like that was good for me because I feel prepared to deal with it now. Yeah. Because there are going to be lots of really crazy directors who come off as very, very angry. And it's it's easy to try to give that back. I, But it, it's, it's super common. And, and even with people who I think with this guy he 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 was well-meaning you know like you talk to him outside of work and he was very nice and he was very like affectionate to his crew and it's like always thanking everybody so there was some level of like i had to understand that he was probably scared like i was and and under a huge amount of pressure right? like like the like world nobody's like, gonna hunt you down later if exactly, the film doesn't turn out right you know like he is the one who this money is on the line of so it's it's easy for directors to get like that and you have to be able to communicate with a person who's in that state without escalating their like yeah. anger levels you know like you need to be able to talk them down a little bit so that you can get stuff done because i I think it might be more often than not that the directors are going to be lunatics. Like, yeah, I, I don't think that's been the case for me lately, but like, I think in the bigger budget world, I mean, okay. So I, I've been watching a lot of documentaries about famous directors. Yeah. Uh, I recently watched uh film worker, which by the way, if you haven't seen it, you need to watch it, but okay. it's, it's about this guy who was Stanley Kubrick's right hand man. Okay. Um, he was basically Stanley Kubrick's entire production team. And they would say that if you went into the production office, there wasn't a team of people working. It was this one guy with thousands and thousands of notes. And he basically anything that Stanley needed to like facilitate his movies, like this guy would make it happen. Um, and it was like this long career. And it, it was cool because it ended with like when Kubrick died, this guy was the one who sat down and watched the rescans of every single Kubrick movie and made sure that it looked exactly the way that Stanley intended it because okay. he was the only person who knew. Through this movie, he tells a lot of stories about working on sets, on sets of movies that are extremely influential. Yes. Um, and objectively, it sounds like working under Stanley Kubrick was a extremely hostile environment. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that's, <laughs> I believe that is correct. Right. The more you hear about these major 
like films where the directors like are being regarded as as geniuses almost all of them are crazy because they have this like they they have this vision where they just know this is how it has to be and they'll do whatever they can do to make it happen um so it's it's scary to think about that like it's scary to look at the biggest most influential movies and hear stories about them and realize that it was a nightmare for the people who were working on it have you seen max joseph's uh youtube piece about Mm -hmm. uh I'm I'm paraphrasing here, but do you have to be a jerk to be a, a good uh, director? Yeah, I've heard bits. Yeah, uh, it's it's worth it's worth looking in up because uh, it it really gets directly at that question. Yeah, and especially in film where um, every project you do is your job interview for the next project. Yeah, exactly. Right, like that is that is that is how people decide who they're going to work with. Um, so so like being able to maintain a he- a cool head in a very heated confrontational environment is like i think an important skill it definitely is um, yeah. and something that like i'm really glad i have that i learned from from other aspects of my life like just arguing with my roommate was like a thing that i spent a lot of time getting really chill about and trying to be like no i'm not going to fight over things that are stupid and that was what like put me in the position to be able to to not get super confrontational on movies because that's the opposite of me growing up like i tended to be a kid in high school where i didn't get mad much but like if you did something that got me mad it was like i blacked out and somebody else showed up and i was just screaming at people Mm. um but like finding a way to like let that go especially in an environment where like in film that you will 100 percent be put in environments like that like it is it is not a if it's a win you get yeah. on that project that like you and everybody else is just going to have to babysit this person um but it, it it's an important thing to think about is is because it is the way you carry yourself is the way that people see you um and it decides whether or not they want to work with you again yeah like how do you, how does this person respond when the pressure is on yeah and like on to the point where like it doesn't feel like anything's going to work uh yeah 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 like it's it's definitely like you need to be able to to be good in high pressure situations which is interesting for me because like i feel like that's where i thrive almost a lot of times in filmmaking is like like um when i'm put in a position to like figure this out (laughs) and we don't have time to do it it's like those are the moments where i will do something and and just amaze myself that i figured it out um i this is not my example but uh when when we were shooting the um the new york film it was uh we were doing it was the party scene it was the rave and they were shooting on a gimbal um and they they were shooting on a gimbal with like a mimic controller and wheels uh it was this very complex thing that they were trying to figure out um and after our first take the gimbal died um Hmm. the batteries were just drained it just took all of them uh and like I, I looked over to Adam, the AC, and just like, it's it's like you just see the, like the, the, the color drain from his face <laughs> because he realizes like, we don't have enough batteries for the gimbal to keep shooting on it. Right. Right. We, we're, this is not a sustainable, uh, exactly. this isn't going to work essentially. <laughs> uh, and he, he was like, you know, they called cut and he was like, I need five minutes. Everybody stop. And they flew the gimbal in and they set it down and he, he runs out to the truck and he comes back with this like big bag of random AC stuff and he starts digging around in it and he ends up 
you know, mounting a battery to the back of the guy's vest from the easy rig that's holding the gimbal and like running the wires up down. And he finds the right things to like connect and put it all in and ends up getting the whole thing powered off of a gold mount, like an Anton Bauer. Okay. Um, and then, you know, like we, he stands back up and he goes back over the controller <laughs> and he kind of like takes this deep breath and I walk up and I was like, Hey man, <laughs> are you okay? And he was like, I don't know what just happened. I think I blacked out for a second. <laughs> Um, but I have no idea how I did that. Like, I, 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 I did not think I had the tools to make that happen, which is why they originally went with going with the gimbal batteries to power the whole rig. Um, but it, that was that's a perfect example of how it goes sometimes, where you're just, like, put in this position where it's like, figure this out really fast or else. Uh, and it's cool because I think it's moments like that where you see the level of things that you're actually capable of um, and it, there's like this level of frustration with it where it's like, I feel like there's this whole untapped portion of my brain that can figure all of these things out that I can't like activate and use unless like I'm really being pressured, right? Like unless I'm really in the thick of it, it's like uh, the story of the mom who lifts a car off of her child. <laughs> like right. I feel like that's what it is. It's like fight or flight kicks in and all yeah. of a sudden you know everything and then, then you're back in a regular scenario, and you're like, I don't even know what's going on anymore. <laughs> it's, it's just like it gets turned off, and it's gone. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting, because it's like those moments that you feel like, like, because th that's what's going to make or break it, right? It's like uh, keeping up with the baseline easy stuff is, is a lot of people can do that. But being able to, like, in, to, to go into crisis mode and to, to figure something out on the fly... Um, like that, those are the moments that I think are make or break for a film project because that you can you could lose everything. Like you could, it, a lot of the times it is like the movie could just end, or you know, like there's lots of scenarios where you'll blow a day on a location that you don't have another day at that location, and then what? You, I don't know. Like I definitely haven't been on a movie yet that had the money where they were like, oh, we'll just pick it up or we'll do another day. You know, like all the stuff I've been on has been like, no, these are the days we're shooting and we're not adding anything to that. Um, but I, that's, that's one of the things I enjoy about filmmaking is the, the pressure of it. It It's rough when you're in it. Um, but the adrenaline that you get from succeeding in a scenario like that, I imagine it's a lot of the reason people will skydive or free solo. It's because the, the adrenaline you rush from what is either a dangerous or uh, a professionally dangerous situation. Yeah. Um, it, 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 I don't know. It, you really feel like you did something that mattered when you come out of it. Well, I can't think of a much better uh, conclusion than that. And I wish you many successful um, problem solving sessions <laughs> on your upcoming projects. Yeah. This has just been a real, uh, yeah, delight no, to great. catch up. I'm so yeah. glad. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you for having me. It was super awesome. I, it's, I could sit and talk about film for days on end. Uh, but most of the people in my life are not filmmakers. So it's always good to be able to sit down with another person from the industry and just talk about it. I feel like working in film kind of takes all types, but the type that Matt is that really thrives on the adrenaline of being in the heat of the battle, so to speak, and uh, finding solutions that you didn't even realize you were capable of coming up with, uh, that really speaks, I think, to the kind of person that can do well in a certain aspect of filmmaking. 
I hope you enjoyed today's episode. There's really a lot there for anyone who's early in their career as a filmmaker. And we'll see you again next time on Pictures Up.